Hello and welcome to this Rash Decision podcast where we look at skin-related issues, conditions and treatments in an interesting and informative way. I'm Dr Roger Henderson. I'm a GP with a long-standing interest in this area of health. And I'm Dr George Moncrief. I was also a GP that I've now retired from my practice and I was the chair of the Dermatology Council for England. So today George and I will be talking about the management of what can be viewed as tricky sites on the body for psoriasis. And this is the third of three podcasts about psoriasis we've been doing. And if you were with us for the first two, where we talked about the basics of the condition and then its management, we do hope you found them helpful and interesting. And I suppose, George, this comes back to the point that psoriasis affects more sites than the usual suspects of elbows and knees. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Okay. Um, well, let's think about the different patterns. Well, well, the first thing I think to think about is guttate psoriasis. Um, it's typically, it's often the first presentation of someone's tendency to psoriasis, and it usually follows a streptococcal infection which almost invariably is in the throat, but it doesn't have to be in the throat. And it, it often follows about a fortnight after the start of the streptococcal infection. And guttate comes from the Latin, a gutter, a raindrop. And actually the word psoriasis comes from the Greek psora, I have an itch. So we're just using a bit of classical education there to call it guttate psoriasis. But you get these little raindrop-sized sort of splatterings on the, on the body of typical plaques of psoriasis um, coming up quite suddenly a fortnight or so after a sore throat, a really often a really bad sore throat. The patient remembers a sore throat. Now the rash is usually self-limiting, but it can certainly last three to six months and often it's it just matures into chronic stable plaque psoriasis. Um, in my experience, there's absolutely no point giving antibiotics. They don't help sore throats and the, they don't have any impact, in my experience, at helping to relieve the guttate psoriasis. This is an antibody response, almost certainly, or a T-cell response to the bacteria. You may want to just do an ASOT if you felt like it, but remember that isn't going to be positive until about the time the rash appears. So how do I help patients with this? Well. I've talked about emollients before, haven't I, Roger? And yeah, yeah. I have. Three E's, emollients, emollients, emollients. Yes. <laughs> I, I won't stress those too much, but they clearly have a very, very useful role here. This is a situation where I do often use tars, actually, because the nice thing about tar is it's fine on normal skin. So you can get a tar lotion, which can spread very easily. It relieves the itch. It treats the guttate psoriasis, and you can cover large areas of skin quite effectively. So a tar lotion can be helpful, but probably need to be using it more than a couple of times a day. And for a young person who's working for exams or working for their career, getting their clothes off, their kit off to put tar on and then smell like they're doing the street outside, <laughs> it, it's not really that ideal. In the past, the only thing that we could then suggest was referral for light therapy. And occasionally I'd ring the hospital and say, I've got a patient with gut ache, psoriasis, can you slip them in as soon as possible? Because there's no point in them waiting 18 months for an appointment and uh, all, all the trash that we have to cope with nowadays. But if you have private cover, then light therapy is certainly an option. But the treatment, when I was discussing this with other members of the committee of the Primary Care Dermatology Society, when we were writing our guidance, 
and there are, there are consultants on that on the board that were writing that guidance with us. And the treatment that we all would use for our patients and for our families is Enstilarphone, which I mentioned last time, the combination product. It's not licensed, and the company who make it, Leo, would not be endorsing that at all. But my son actually had psoriasis, uh, guttate psoriasis, quite badly. And he saw a consultant privately who suggested Dovabet gel. And I was astonished. This is my first introduction to it. So I um, said, no way, you're not having Dovabet. You're having Enstelar. And it worked a treat. And yep, you're putting Enstelar onto normal skin. It's a little bit irritant potentially. But it, it does work very, very well. So nowadays, my management of gut psoriasis is emollients, some natural sunlight therapy. If you can persuade your patient to get out of the sun and the sun's warm enough and, and, and effective enough, a bit of natural UVB, not causing redness, because that could carbonize the psoriasis and not causing any sunburn. That's really not good for you. Mm -hmm. But some sub-erythema, sensible, natural sunlight therapy. So emollients, natural sunlight therapy, and Enstelar is my approach to guttate psoriasis nowadays. Off license. If we think about um, Fletcher's, obviously the next place, um, I suppose the first thing to say is make sure you're happy with the diagnosis, and we touched on this the last time, make sure that you haven't got a dermatitis, um, which is masquerading as very mild uh, psoriasis. So if we assume that you're content that the diagnosis is of psoriasis, Again, we come back to almost dry skin management in, in the flexures. You know, we're avoiding soaps and we are using emollients just to kickstart, aren't we? Yes, I think so. Um, yeah, the differential, um, I think eczema is really much more itchy. Flexural psoriasis is a bit irritant, but not anything like as itchy as the eczema. So, and they're more likely to be not so symmetrical. I'm thinking under the breast and in the natal cleft and in the groin and in the armpit. Those are the sort of flexures where you tend to see flexural psoriasis. And interestingly, psoriasis, even what looks like plaque psoriasis on the umbilicus is defined as flexural psoriasis. Um, so yeah, the differential might include seborrheic dermatitis and maybe a bit of SIBO psoriasis. So you definitely need to consider that. And sometimes I'll treat them for some sebderm with a, an anti-yeast um, of your choice, really. Um, so an imidazole such as dactarin, um, myconazole, which actually interestingly helps psoriasis a little bit and also has antibacterial activity. So interesting molecule, myconazole, but you could use ketoconazole. And, and I'm amazed that oral tabinafen has no yeast action, but topical tabinafen does have some weak anti-yeast action, but I wouldn't be using tabinafen here. Um, but no, could it be seborrheic dermatitis? Could it be candida? Sometimes people mistake psoriasis and candida. Yeah. They're both sort of intertriginous and going from moist areas. The psoriasis definitely looks different in this glazed, shiny, but well demarcated pattern. But in candida, I'd expect to see little satellite lesions beyond it. Um, you might be thinking, could there be some candida there as well? But I absolutely agree. It's the, it's, it's the same. Emollients have a crucial role here and soap avoidance. So that is number one. TARS, again, are fairly effective. And so I'd use TARS, um, and particularly into the genital, genital area, um, which is flexural psoriasis. TARS are sort of the mainstay of my treatment. If, you, if that's not enough, then you probably need to go in with at least a moderately potent topical steroid. Occasionally, I use a short course of a potent topical steroid, but I'd definitely be going with something of, of sort of clobetazone, butyrate strength, that's Umivate, 
And this is a situation where I might be using a cream rather than an ointment. I'm, I'm normally trying to keep quite pure and remain just using topical steroids with, as ointments. But if you've got very sort of slippery, moist, oozing skin, ointments to slip off. And occasionally you may need to consider secondary infection with candida. Not not likely because the skin's turning over quite fast, but occasionally your myconazole can help to cover that too. And very occasionally, particularly in the valval area, I'll be thinking about um, overgrowth of strep A. And so yeah. a, a short course of penicillin can be helpful. But it, it's a really difficult area to manage, and you may want to discuss it with your consultant colleagues. I think that's what I, I, I tend to do. Um, the it can have a big impact on relationships, as you can imagine, particularly if it's yes. valval or genital. Um, it doesn't look nice. It doesn't feel nice. And it can be very, very embarrassing. So it can have a big, big impact on the patient's self-esteem and relationships and things like that. So do be sensitive to that part of the treatment. Very, very much. That's a really good message from the wayside pulpit. And the other thing that people get really embarrassed about obviously is, is facial psoriasis they want it gone and they yeah. want it gone <clears throat> today um, and that's when we really feel the pressure in practice I think when someone is really insistent because this is what the world is looking at and we touched on this in earlier podcasts about the impact mm-hmm. of that they really really want it gone but um, you know the, 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 the protocols that we're using and the, the, the treatment pathways are not massively different are they really not massively. Um, fortunately, fa- facial psoriasis is quite uncommon, so it, it, it's not that much, not, not often a problem. But again, the same things I've said above, it's soap avoidance, emollients. Um, don't let the shampoo wash down onto your face, for example. Um, try to put as few chemicals on your face as possible, otherwise. Tars would help, but uh, not always that potent or that effective. Occasionally, you need to use a moderately potent topical steroid, but on the face, I'm, I'm more happy with those inflections, interestingly, although the skin is, is um, thin in the flexures as well. It's especially thin around the eye. And also, steroids can trigger things like periorificial dermatitis and obviously make rosacea worse. And these are common conditions. So I don't like using moderately potent steroids or even potent topical steroids on the face. In the past, I used to sometimes talk to patients about trying some silkis, calcitriol, ointment. And I was a bit cautious about this. It, it is irritant and it's not licensed on the face. So you're off license there. And what I say to patients is it would work if your skin can tolerate it. So try it a little bit, but wash it off after half an hour and only treat a small area. And if that's okay, you could try putting it on and leaving it on for a few hours. And if that's okay, leave it on all evening and, and repeat this every sort of three or four days, every day. Um, and if your skin's tolerating that, you could build up to leaving it on overnight, twice a week, for example, and then gradually build up from there. And it, it would work, but it's not licensed and it's generally rather irritant in both the flexures and on, on the face, but it, it does work. But the thing that has transformed the landscape for facial psoriasis is protopic. A protopic is not licensed for psoriasis, but full strength protopic in an adult, 0.1% protopic ointment once a day is magical. And that will give the results the patient is wanting. That, yeah. that is, if I had psoriasis on my face, 
it is protopica that I'll be, along with the emollients and, and a bit of sensible natural sunlight therapy, which is almost inevitable, um, I'd be using some protopic ointment once a day. And typically within a couple of weeks, things are markedly improved. So mm -hmm. that has really transformed the landscape there. But you've got those options. Soap avoidance, emollients, TARS, steroids, natural sunlight therapy, protopic off-license, fabulous. And then right up your sleeve, possibly keep silkies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and if you really do get stuck, don't hesitate to think about at least picking up the phone to the local uh, dermatologist. Um, yeah, don't don't uh, write yeah. ring. Yeah, yeah abso abso uh, uh, absolutely. Today's podcast has once again been made possible by the kind support of Aproderm. Aproderm is the company behind a range of innovative emollients that include creams, a gel and an ointment, all formulated to soothe, moisturise and protect skin affected by a whole range of dry skin conditions, including eczema, psoriasis and ichthyosis. As a long-standing GP, I haven't come across a better range of products to provide effective relief from a range of dry skin conditions. They're also simply great daily moisturisers. So why am I such an apoderm advocate? Well, firstly, they're suitable from birth, which makes prescribing so much easier. No worry about whether it's suitable for use on a baby. In addition, the whole range is free from the common irritants and sensitizers found in many other products. These include the usual suspects such as parabens, sodium lauryl sulfate, benzyl alcohol, coloring agents and fragrances, just to name a few. And the complete range is suitable for vegans and is cruelty free. So it ticks all the boxes and makes prescribing so much easier. The range currently consists of colloidal oat cream, an emollient, gel, and an ointment with corresponding degrees of greasiness. There really is something for everyone and the whole range is drug tariff listed. They're also the only range that has a starter pack available, which allows your patients to try each of the four products in the range. This can reduce the need for multiple prescriptions and practice visits for the patient in their journey to choose the emollient that suits them best, which as we all know, is always the best option. I encourage you to try Aproderm with your patients. Thanks again to Aproderm for sponsoring this groundbreaking podcast and helping us to provide our patients with the best possible care. Nails, obviously, I suppose we have to, to, to think about. Um, again uh, tricky because we've got a dirty great nail plate trying to sort of defeat us <laughs> yeah i wish you hadn't mentioned nails <laughs> <laughs> i don't like nails they're difficult um uh, well yes exactly as you say the nail plate gets in the way so you can't get access to the nail bed which is where the psoriasis plaque is coming from um, often you're lucky and the nail is onycholithic, it's, it's come away from the nail bed, I've got distal onycholysis. And so in that situation, you can trickle. I used to trickle or try and get Umivate ointment under there or Umivate lotion, Elecon lotion and um, uh, Dover Nex lotion, trickle those under. Years ago, I used to do that. And then I had the gel, which was much easier. I think nowadays I'd probably try and trickle the foam under the plate as best I could and try and get it down under there as much as possible. 
Cadenit's got a secondary, because it's, it, the environment has been disturbed, you get a secondary fungal infection. So it might just be worth trying to get some, some scrapings from that. Remember, a fungus is like a forest fire. Um, it's, you've got living fungus at the edge, the advancing edge. So in the forest fire, that's where the flames are. I think of the flames being like the fungus. And then what it leaves behind is ash. And if you're taking scrapings from the dead debris where the fungus used to be, i.e. the distal edge, you're going to just get ash and you won't grow fungus. You need to get to the advancing edge, which is usually proximal in the nail. Um, so if you get a negative nail clippings or nail scrapings culture, it doesn't mean that it's not fungus. It just means that you didn't get to the active edge. But occasionally treating the fungus can, can, can help to break the cycle. But it's the nails are difficult, really difficult. Often they need second line agents like hand or foot poover, um, oral treatments like acetretin or biologicals and things. I think from our point of view, probably one of the most important things to remember with nails is that they are the most important marker for psoriatic arthritis. Not just psoriatic arthritis of the interphalangeal joints, including the distal interphalangeal joint, um, but also it's a marker for back um, psoriasis arthritis and other patterns of psoriasis nail arthritis so if you see nail disease think in particular think think arthritis yeah and, and i think that arthritis psoriatic arthritis is something that can if i've seen a patient with psoriatic arthritis i can still be thinking about the best management of them when i'm tucking into a glass of something cold and fruity at the end of the day um i don't <laughs> like i don't like psoriatic arthritis and i have to say i've got a fairly low threshold of of, of referring if if need be you should have no know. threshold for referring it uh, the, the difference between psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis on the skin is that psoriasis on the skin can usually return to completely normal skin but psoriasis of the joint is destroying the joint architecture yeah. and that's permanent. So it is important to recognize, important to have a non-existent threshold really. Um, and if you're a dermat consultant dermatologist specializing in psoriasis, if you suspect psoriatic arthritis, you need to be involving, almost invariably need to be involving a rheumatologist. So it's an urgent referral, and I think in red letters, urgent referral to rheumatology. Um, there are not many urgent referrals, but that is definitely one um, for, for, for skin diseases. Uh, psoriatic arthritis needs an urgent referral to rheumatology. In fact, because I was so vocal um, over my unhappiness with the NICE guidelines when they came out in 2012, they were doing an evidence update in 2014 and invited me to... Um, come on to that to help them. So I thought, great, okay, knock a bit of sense in. I, I wanted to get them to change their views on the management of chronic stable plaque psoriasis, but they weren't interested and they wouldn't, they wouldn't listen to me. Um, and instead, they asked me to, to focus on psoriatic arthritis, which is a real eye-opener. I had to read a lot of papers and there's a huge board, there must be about 30 people on the board, um, including three rheumatologists, but they still wanted my primary care opinion. I just thought to myself, pity you didn't want a primary care opinion on your original guideline, but never mind. Um, and I was fascinated by what I learned. I learned there that psoriatic arthritis is destructive and therefore needs urgent referral. I learned that it, it's terribly important to refer it urgently. And there are various guidelines, CASPAR, TOPAS, but the one that we all like is PEST, which stands for Psoriasis Epidemiology Study, which is very simple and quick to use. 
Have you ever had a swollen joint? Have you ever been told you got arthritis by a doctor? Is there any pitting of the nails? Interesting, pitting of the nails is not pathognomonic for psoriasis. You can get pitting, regular pitting in alopecia areata, and you can get pitting in lichen planus, and even in eczema. But in psoriasis, it classically causes pitting as, as an early minor feature. So even nail pitting, but any nail disease, and heel pain, enthesopathies like um, um, plantar fasciitis and things can, and Achilles te paratendinitis can actually be caused by a, a psoriasis enthesopathy. So if you've got any of those are positive, you need to be thinking psoriasis. All, all the questionnaires that sort of help you to alert you to the possibility of psoriasis arthritis or psoriatic arthritis will miss back pain, back spondylitis. So you do then also need to consider they ask the patient, do you get any low back pain or um, early morning stiffness in your back? And of course, we all do. But uh, you need to just be thinking, could this be caused by psoriasis? And palms. Um, pa I'm thinking here palmar plantar pustulosis. Um, again, patients don't like this nasty uh, condition. I've seen uh, patients with this who have been misdiagnosed as um, pomphilix, for example, um, things th things like that, again, can be tricky, but pretty pretty nasty if you've got it. Yeah, I, I've heard some dermatologists question whether it is actually psoriasis, but I have little doubt it is in my mind. Um, two to four percent of the population have psoriasis. But 29% of patients with this condition have a history or have active psoriasis. So it's clearly linked to psoriasis. And it's confined to, in my experience, to smokers or ex-smokers. I have met one doctor who says he's seen one patient once with it who wasn't a smoker and had never smoked. Um, which is, so it's very interesting. Smoking has this central role. It's definitely, um, there's, there's a gene that's now been associated with it. So it has a familial tendency. And what we think is that nicotine activates the eccrine duct nicotine acetylcholine receptors um, and causes them to become occluded and sets up this process. And I have seen it to people who stopped smoking even 30 years ago. It, it starts off with rather creamy coloured pustules up to about five, six, seven millimetres across, usually on the on the centre of the palms or the of the arch of the foot, usually fairly symmetrically, fairly well demarcated with a bit of scale around the place. And then over a few days, these creamy coloured pustules mature into flat brown macules, which are pathognomonic for the condition. So if you see flat brown macules on an erythematous base on the art of the foot, you're dealing with palmar plantar pustulosis. And I've seen this appear over a weekend. In fact, there's a gross picture of it on someone's palms um, on Dermnet NZ. So if I have a, it's more common in women in their middle years. So if I have a woman in her, say, 40s who smokes and has psoriasis, I'll say, look, before you go, can I just show you this horrible picture? And I bring it up on my screen and say, that could be your hands on Monday. I've seen this normal hands on Friday evening. By Monday morning, your hands are covered in pustules. And it's horrible. It's mm. painful. You can't wipe your bottom. You can't use your phone. You can't use your computer. You can't drive your car. You can't dress. You can't undress. And I can't really help you. 
And I haven't seen it in someone who's never smoked. So you're a candidate for this. It's potluck. And if you carry on smoking, your chance of getting it being terrible is higher. Don't smoke because one, it's bad for you. Two, it accelerates arteriosclerosis, so does psoriasis. And three, you're exposing yourself to this risk. So that's the most important message when you're thinking about palmar plantar postulosis. Just don't smoke. As a, yep, little aside there, sorry, as a little aside there, just making me think of this, I've seen a patient with, with, with pusillosis, um, palmar pusillosis, um, and they'd stopped smoking years and years before and presented. And I was scratching my head, you, you, you still got this, and you've got this almost as, as, as bad as you had when, when, you, when you were smoking and we were sort of looking at each other. And yeah. then the penny drops, and I said, "Are you on NRT?" He said, "Oh, I, I'm a, yeah, I'm on nicotine replacement, you know, big time, and and, and always have been. Um, always has to give their own NRT as well, yeah. because although the therapeutic levels yeah. of, of, of nicotine yeah. are less than than a smoker, it's still yeah. enough to keep it driving it's along. Not, so not, not the target yeah. of doing it, the nicotine, absolutely, yeah. yes, yeah. such a, a very interesting point there. Yeah, but yeah. well, we 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 can try." You can try treating it. You, you probably won't get anywhere with it. Um, super potent topical steroids, perhaps under some occlusion, polythene occlusion at night. You could try the combination. In my experience, it doesn't really do very much. I've even tried Enstelarm. To be honest, I haven't found that very useful. You need to get the patient into hospital, well, up to hospital for hand and foot poover. That, that probably is the most effective first-line treatment. But then you're rapidly moving through to methotrexate. In fact, I have seen good results with acetretin, um, and I've certainly prescribed that to, as a GP for my patients. I'm not asking other GPs to do it. You need to be fairly experienced with oral retinoids to be doing that because mm -hmm. it hangs around for two or three years. And these are women usually, often still in childbearing years, and it's a retinoid. So you need the patient to be under very, very effective contraceptive cover. Uh, legally, you're supposed to do a pregnancy test on them every month before you give another month's um, supply of medication, which isn't hardly practical for you or the patient. Um, so again, I think that's probably a treatment for secondary care. But there are things that are used, and they do help. But you don't want to get it, and you're likely to be getting it is by never smoking. Yeah, absolutely. So that we, there's an enormous amount of information we've sort of covered uh, there, and hopefully, it's been really helpful and a lot of people have learned a lot of things from it um if we were to sort of think about a top five takeaway sort of bullet point um almost like a little summary just to to to, to be thinking about in, in our surgeries what would you sort of be highlighting to sort of condense what we've been talked about well i think i probably put emollients top yeah ignore do a dlqi every time you see the patient and that will alert you probably to relationship problems, depression, and the impact it can have. But look at the answers. Don't just score it. Look at the answers and see where they're putting threes. And then say, oh, I see this is affecting you. Tell me about it. Yeah. I think we as GPs should be doing the Q-risk or equivalent. Um, secondary care are not set up to do that, but our computers can do it very quickly and easily. So. Glean the information you need to do a Q-risk and do that. Because these our patients with moderate or severe psoriasis are candidates for heart disease. They die with severe psoriasis four or five years younger than individuals without psoriasis, and they're dying from heart disease and strokes. Always think about psoriatic arthritis. Um, 
It needs to be at the back of your mind and it needs urgent referral. I, I was taught one in seven patients with psoriasis have psoriatic arthritis. When I was doing that work for NICE, I discovered that 40% of patients who were referred to secondary care needed to be referred on to rheumatology as well for psoriatic arthritis, 40%. Wow. I think we're now thinking that psoriatic arthritis probably affects around about 20% of patients. So it's, it is more common than we were taught. Um, and I think good medicine always means they're thinking about the patient's ideas and their concerns and their current treatments and what they're using and what they're not using and whether they're adhering to our treatment and what they're using over the counter and so on. And final message, don't smoke. I think I've stressed that. If, if you want to, 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 to really get a feel for what having a skin condition feels like for the patient, and in particular psoriasis, I think there's a fabulous YouTube video put together. So if you just put into your Google search engine, the skin I'm in, psoriasis, it should take you straight to this wonderful 11-minute clip, um, which is two actors describing what their psoriasis is doing to them. And, and it's a slightly irritating start. Um, you've got to get into the mood with it. But I find, and if you're going to watch that, can I suggest you go somewhere private, um, close the door and ask not to be disturbed because I have to say, I can't watch it without it bringing a tear to my eye. It's um, powerful, powerful stuff. And I have to say, I've probably watched it about 20 times now and I still find it very powerful. So can I point you in the direction of the skin I'm in, psoriasis? You can, and that's now straight at the top of my watching list for later in private. Um, so I think that's a really lovely place to bring these episodes on psoriasis to a close. Uh, and I do hope that uh, you found them interesting and helpful. Roger and I do hope that you will join us again in about three weeks when we'll be discussing another topic that helps you to look after the health of your patient's skin as effectively as possible. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Aproderm, for all their help in putting these rash decision podcasts together. We couldn't have done it without them. So as always, until the next time, it's goodbye from George. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>